0: I'm going to start this morning by reading two Scriptures for our Scripture reading, and then I'm going to pray and dismiss the kids. I want to warn you in advance that we're going to go through the entire chapter of Acts 14, save the last three verses. And I am not going to have any of them on the screen. So, if you don't have a Bible with you today, you're going to want one. They're in the uh, bin by the by the sound booth back there. Please avail yourself of that... Uh, of that opportunity, the, the Word of God is amazing it's uh, what teaches us it's what inspires us it, it's what reminds us of our relationship with him uh, and, and it is inspired. it is written by him. so let me, let me start by reading two verses that aren't part of our text today but speak to us mightily as we go into our text today. Matthew 28. Verse 19 and following, "...Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And then as we started Acts, the study of Acts, we read in chapter 1, verse 8 and following, "...but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today and look at Acts chapter 14, we see an incredible and amazing thing happening. We see the 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 prophetic word of Jesus Christ there in Acts chapter one that wasn't just a command but a prophecy begin to come true. We see your appointed. Emissaries speaking your word first to the Jew and then to the Gentile and then out into what became Gal- what is Galatia, what is modern day Turkey. Uh, and we see the, the beginning of the spread of the gospel to people who have never heard it before. Father, we ask that you would open hearts and minds to the word that, that, that you have written and what it is that you have to say to us today. Father, we pray especially for the 30 women who aren't with us here today who are up at Word of Life, uh, who have availed themselves of this opportunity to go and gather together and remove themselves from the daily pressures and and come together and, and, and learn specifically about what You have to say to them this week. And we ask that You would move mightily among them, that Your Holy Spirit would be active among them, and that they would come back to us refreshed and renewed and ready to again serve You and glorify You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. As they go, if you need a Bible, please go and get one. I can't tell you how uh, important the Bible is to me in my life. Um, I was reminded again over the last couple of weeks as I prepared to come and speak to you that uh, I don't put enough of me, <laughs> I don't put enough time into studying the Word of God. Uh, I have enjoyed an, um, immensely the opportunities to come and speak to you from the Word of God because I spend time in it, studying it in ways that I don't normally do. I get to see things at a deeper level as I read the Bible and what other more highly educated men than myself have to say about it. So, I I just want to, if I can take a minute before I get into the text and, and try to emphasize to you or just relate to you what the Bible means to me. I think the best way that I can do that is is relate to a conversation that I had with a young man while I was in the Navy. A young man was raised outside of the church, didn't have a biblical background, didn't have any understanding of the Scripture as it was written. And for some reason, and I can't tell you why, he recognized that when he had a question, I usually had an answer. And it probably is just because I have a big mouth and I speak out. And, and when I have an opinion, it's usually not just my opinion, it's everybody's. So he saw this. He recognized somebody who had strong opinions and used big words sometimes. And uh, so he'd come to me and he'd ask me questions. Well, what about this and what about that? And my answer to him invariably was, well, it doesn't really matter what I think or what I know. Let's see what God has to say about it. And I always carry a little Bible with me and I'd flip it out open and then I'd start reading it to him. And so one day he came to me and, and I said to him, do you have a Bible, Ed? And he said, yeah, I do. I said, where is it, Ed? He, says, he said, it's on the shelf. I said, well, let me just tell you a story. You see, you have a Father in Heaven. A Creator. Someone who made you. Someone who designed you intimately with intent. And He went away on a long trip. And I know all of us can relate to that. At some level, at some place, there's been somebody in your life whom you loved dearly, whom you were separated with for an, a period of time. And when that happened, you wanted to hear from them. You wanted to communicate with them. And now we've got Facebook and texting and all these things. And we still have some separations that can't be overcome by that. Somebody Sometimes it's prison. Sometimes it's the military. Sometimes it's just travel to a place where there's no coverage like Catskill. But, <laughs> but when that happens, you have to write a letter. And the person who's experiencing that separation, when they receive that letter, what do they do with it? They toss it on a shelf and let it get covered with dust, never pay attention to it, maybe go back to it every now and again, just, you know, one or two times a year to see what it has to say. No, you tear the top off that letter, you rip it open, you pour through it from beginning to end, you identify with it, all of it. And then you find favorite parts and you highlight it and you go back to it over and over and over again. And while you're in that time of separation, you save it and you savor it and you hold on to it and you keep going back to it over and over and over again. And I want to encourage you that that's what we have. We have a God, a Father, a Creator, a Sovereign Lord of the universe who has written us here that letter, that love letter, that we need to pour over and make our own and identify with and identify ourselves through and seek His face through and find the parts that are our favorites and underline them and, and study them and pay attention to them and if we can, apply them to our lives. So all that being said, let's take a look We're studying through Acts. We do this in this church. If you're new here, we we choose a book of the Bible as a group of elders and we start studying it. And we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we took a break and we studied um, the atonement leading up to the Easter uh, season, which was a very powerful series of sermons for me and I hope it was for you an, an explanation of exactly what Jesus did for us, how He did it, what it meant for Him to go through it. What the atonement looked like and what it became for us and what it is for us today. And that was really a great time for me. And then last week, Lou took us back into the book of Acts. And he spent uh, a large, well, not a large part of the service, but a part of the service last week talking to us about where we had been in Acts. Because I don't know about you, but I needed, after five weeks, I needed a reminder, six weeks, I needed a reminder. And then uh, he got into Acts chapter 13. I'm going the wrong way. Let's try again. There we go. So I just wanted to start today by 13, 14 and 15 to me are a a large watershed moment in the history of Christianity. Chapters 13, 14 and 15 each in their own have beautiful truth in them and are separate chapters although when Luke wrote this book he didn't dis, you know separate them by the chapters and verse headings that we have today. It it, it makes it easier in some ways for us to study because 17-hour sermons can be broken into one hour or less segments that we can uh, bring without putting people to sleep. So, <clears throat> that these divisions weren't there when they started. <clears throat> but you remember, Paul and Barnabas are in the church in Antioch. And, and they are brought together by a group of elders. And they're commissioned to take the Gospel away from that area of the... Uh, where they were in at the time, that church where they were in, and, and to begin to spread the gospel in other areas. And they sailed to Cyprus and went across to Salamis in Cyprus and went across to Paphos and then got on another boat and sailed up to Perga. And then they crossed from Perga into Antioch. And I just wanted to give you an idea of, of some of these distances. Um, I just got on Google Earth, which is a great tool, and, and just drew lines. And it looks like from Perga to Antioch was probably about 160 miles. So that gives you a reference as to the distance that they're traveling in each one of these little things. So this is not a short trip. Now you and I can get on an airplane and we can fly halfway around the world in a day and all, probably all the way around the world in a day and, and so we've really shortened distances in our culture but this was a several day trip for them to go up to Antioch and they spent some time there and, and Lou talked about that last week and he can... He, He kind of focused us in on a a singular question last week, and we talked about it in community group in our community group. And I hope that you, some of you, took the opportunity to to focus in on it because we're going to look at it a little bit more today. Lou said, "When given the opportunity, when when the opportunity is presented in front of you to stand up for Jesus Christ and to speak out the truth of the gospel, what would you say?" And he he kind of focused, at least in my mind, what I saw, what jumped off the page to me when we started studying for community group and when we met in community group was that question, that question of what would you say. And we see that in our text today in chapter 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas being commissioned in a church, hands laid on by the elders, recognition of a gift given to them already by the Holy Spirit and a calling made for them specifically by the Holy Spirit, sent out, sentness out into a community, and how did they approach that? They went first to a place that they were comfortable in Antioch. They went to the synagogue. They went to the religious center. They went to a place where they knew what they were going to hear. They knew the words that were going to be used. They all spoke the same language. They all had the same Scriptures. They all had the same background in those Scriptures. They all more or less recognized God's prophetic speaking through time. And they brought a new message. They brought the message of Jesus Christ using that common scenario. As we move forward into chapter 14, they go from Antioch to Iconium, and they see in Iconium a similar scenario. We see in Iconium a similar scenario. We see Paul and Barnabas using a cultural norm that they are accustomed to, a community that they are familiar with, a place that they know well, going into that using the the common language and words and definitions that they have with those people to describe Christ. We're going to see three churches in three cities. We're going to see that the cultural mess the, the message is the same, the cultural demonstration of that message changes a little bit, but the responses in each location are different. That these that within these cultural displays of the gospel we see three very different responses. We see the responses of division, which I'm sure if you've spoken to people about the Gospel in your lives, sometimes you're met with rejection. Or you're you're met with religious objection. Or division over what it is that you're saying. So we can identify with that and we can learn from what happened here. Another one that we're going to see is delusion. Sometimes when we share the Gospel... We're going to be met with misunderstanding or misrepresentation, or or a spiritual or religious response that's not biblical. And then finally, they get to the third church, and what we see the response that we see is devotion. We see a church. We see a people, not a church, but we see a people that is open to the to the to the word of the gospel that respond to it by a devotion to Christ. A church is planted and discipleship begins. And as we go out into our communities and spread the gospel at some point we're going to see that as well and it's a beautiful beautiful thing so <clears throat> they travel from Antioch to Iconium which again is is a multiple days journey it's it's a significant distance <clears throat> when they get there what they do is they find a similar situation to what they they do the same thing that they did in Antioch and i want to read to you Acts chapter 1 I'm sorry not chapter 1 I'm back at my scripture reading I'm sorry Let's turn to Acts chapter 14 together and let's read together verses 1 through 7 and we're going to like I said we're going to work through this chapter pretty much the I think we're pretty much going to read every verse in it, up through verse 23 so just let's do this together Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now I want you to see this. I want you to, I want you to, to get into the moment there if you can. Here's, here's a couple of guys who have been called by the Holy Spirit, yes. They've had their hands, the hands of the elders laid on them. They've been sent out, yes. They're operating outside their comfort zone as a whole. They're going to a foreign land they're, they're meeting new and different people. It's not the same group that they sit with on Sunday every every Sunday morning. It's not the same community group. These are new and different people. So they try to find a place where there's a commonality, a common ground, a common starting point. And they do that by going into the synagogue. Now this is a Gentile and pagan city. This is a Greek city in <clears throat> what's modern-day Turkey. It was at that time something known as Galatia. Galatia. Um, They, uh, I think, I don't know if I'm on the right side. Nope, there we go. It's it's what we we now know as uh, it's what was known at the time as Galatia. Uh, Paul made more than one trip to this area, and he also wrote the letter to the Galatians that we have as part of our scripture. So this was this was his first trip to these people, and in Iconium, in this city, there was a large Jewish population, large enough that they had their own cultural center they had their own synagogue <clears throat> and this was the center of their community this was the point where they met the place where they sought the face of god <clears throat> and and so paul and barnabas go there <clears throat> excuse me because it's a place that they're comfortable with uh, it's a format that they understand they use the same words they speak the same language they have similar interests similar pursuits similar desires. And I think what we can take from that is it's a good starting point for us. If we are truly saved, if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, if we truly begin to understand, I don't think we ever can fully, the depth and level of what Christ worked for us on the cross. And if we look out around us and we see around us people who don't have that understanding, and we know through a study of the Scripture that God has ordained one way and only one way for us to have a personal and intimate and right relationship with Him, and that they have not yet understood that, that the end result of that is permanent, eternal separation from God. Something that you and I would not desire or wish on anyone. And so what has to flow out of us is love for them. Compassion for them. Oh, it's Compassion Sunday. There's a good place to start. Compassion for them. Interest in them. Desire. Almost a need to have them hear and understand what Jesus has done for you in a host that they too will receive it. Now what they do with it, that's on them. But this is what... This is, this is a way that we can start that conversation. We can go to places that we're comfortable with. <clears throat> we can invite them into our homes. That's our biggest comfort zone right there. We can go into their homes. We can start with our families and our neighbors. People that we already have commonality with. Relationship with. Community with. We use the same words. We speak the same language. We communicate the same ways. You know, there's regional cultural conversation items uses of speech that we use here in Glenmont, Albany, south side of Albany, that aren't used in Alabama and Arkansas. And there's cultural expressions there that we don't understand. Christy ate uh, a meal the other day. It was chicken and waffles. Have you ever heard of this? I mean, no, it's not something that we serve up here. It's not a cultural norm, but somebody down in Catskill where we have no service has (coughs) a restaurant and they had been on the road and eaten. Chicken and waffles. And yes, it's chicken and waffles served together. And they thought it was great, so they brought it and they served it at their restaurant. Well, it's, it's not something that we're normally used to here. It's not a cheeseburger and fries. So, we can find common points, commonalities in our communities, in our neighborhoods, places that we're comfortable with, and start with the, the Scriptures. We live in a nation that I remember as a child for most of my upbringing, seeing these surveys that said 80 to 90 percent of this nation of ours is a Christian nation calls itself by the word Christian. We live now in a city, Lou has shown us a study recently, that is the most post-Christian city in the nation. It is it is the least biblically aware city, or very low on that list, which means that we can't probably take words to them that come directly out of the Bible and have them immediately understand that. So that's not the starting point, but that is the finishing point. So we can learn from Paul and Barnabas and what they did in Iconium was from that we can learn that that we can do this too. We can start with people where they're at, understanding them in, in our own mutual comfort zone, and we can utilize that for the purpose of speaking to them about Jesus. And what happened? What happened? Um, it says initially that we're re- they were rewarded with many conversions. Many came to Christ, both, both Jew and Gentile. So, so there, was, there was immediate response. They preached the Gospel. They reached out to people. They shared a common starting point. They finished with the Gospel and many came to Christ. And as happened in Antioch, there was this initial response and then there was an attack. People rose up who disagreed. Who didn't want to believe. And it's an interesting word here that's used. It says that um, it says that they were... Let me read it. It says, uh, so they remained for... Oh, no, no. Let's go to verse 2. I don't know. If, did we read it? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. So there's this initial conflict. There's this initial disagreement between what Paul and Barnabas are teaching and what the the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, want the people to believe. And that word unbelieving there is, is a unique word. It's, it's an oppositional word. Uh, Warren Wersby, I believe it was when I was studying this, said this these are not just people who don't believe. These are anti-believers. They're people who are against the gospel. They have set themselves up against it. So, so this is not just a we're not really sure what you're saying and we're not sure we buy into it. This is a no, you're wrong and we're going to fight you on it kind of a non-belief. So, so I want to I let you know that, that that can happen to us. We can go out there and share the gospel with somebody and they can say yeah, I hear you, but I'm not going to hear you. And they can openly reject what it is that we're bringing to them. But Paul and Barnabas didn't let that opposition stop them. It says that they stayed and spoke boldly for the Lord, and the Lord bore witness to the word that they spoke through signs and wonders. So they, they didn't allow this opposition, this initial conflict, to stop them. So we, I think we can learn from that. I think that we can take that we should also should not allow an initial even a strong disbelief to stop us from speaking boldly for Jesus Christ. I think we need to continue in our examples, continue in our um, conversation to try to find mutual points of interest, places that we can identify, and preach the Gospel on, on those points, at those places. This opposition, as they preached, then caused division in the city. The religious elitists, these non-believers, these anti-believers, stirred up Gentiles, it says, and came out against them. Now, I want to just point out here that that this, this this is a very strange thing. This is something to this point you would have never seen. Because if you remember, Jews and Gentiles don't relate they don't talk to each other they don't speak to each other in this culture in this culture there is no common ground between them because the gentiles would 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 cause the jews if they came into contact with them with being to become unclean and then they couldn't worship so they couldn't go to worship so this was this was anathema this was light and dark coming together for the common purpose of opposing the gospel so this is a, a, a big thing happening here. We see, And we can see this in our culture today. When we, go, when we see the truth of Jesus Christ presented, there are strange bedfellows that join together to fight it. Are there not? I mean, watch the news. Pay attention to what's going on in our world. There are, there are groups, social groups, that would never be identified one with the other for any other reason than to stand up and stop prayer in schools. Stand up and, and oppose uh, Christian messages to be preached, to be taught, to be put on television. We're seeing this happen in our own culture today. But it didn't stop them. They kept preaching. They kept speaking boldly. The division became more and more vo- uh, verbal, vocal, to the point that it became physical. Violence was started. There became, it became violent. And eventually, it came to Paul and Barnabas's attention that, they were, that their lives were at stake. That, that a, a, an undercover group, black ops group, had gone, come together and they were going to kill them. So they decided that, that the better part of judgment in this particular instance was to leave before their lives became at risk. So they left Iconium. And they went on. So if we go with them, we're going to look at uh, verse eight. I'm going to move forward to verse eight. It says, "Oh well, I'm sorry." Verse six, seven, and eight. They learned of it, fled to Lystra and Derbe and cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the gospel. So they they left, they moved on, they started this trip to Lystra which is my next slide, which is a shorter trip. It's only about 50 miles, 50, 60 miles. But it's a, uh, it is a trip. And on the way, they used the opportunity to talk to the people that they came in contact with. You know, the guy served them the burger in the roadside stand and taxi driver. and I know they didn't have a taxi. But, but they took the opportunity to speak to those who were around them about the Gospel. It says, as they went. And they went to a city named Lystra. This is the second stop on their trip. It's the red dot right in the middle under the L of Galatia. of Gala, um, of I, you know there's Galatia. The L is Iconium's at the top and Lystra's the, the one down below. Now Lystra is also a completely Gentile and pagan city. Yes, there's a temple to Zeus there. And there, as far and there was a little bit of. You know, dissension among the different commentators that I read there as to whether there was any Jewish population and/or a synagogue there or not. If there was, it was not a core portion of the city. It was not a large enough synagogue to influence the people. There weren't, an, there wasn't enough Jewish influence there to affect the culture of the people to give Paul and Barnabas a common starting point, a, a, a unique religious experience that allowed them to continue to discuss religious things in a way that would allow them to present the Gospel. So where did they go? They went to the city gate. Now initially, we don't know this from the text. But we'll find out later that they were at the city gate when they started their ministry. So I'm just going to tell you right up front now, they went directly to the city gate. And why did they do that? Well, the city gate in that culture, in that time, was where business was transacted. It was where people went to have judges decide between them in disputes. It was where money was exchanged. It was where contracts were written. It was where property was moved. So they went right into the commercial district. They stood online in the bank and they turned to the person next to them and said, what are you doing here today? Depositing money just like you. Oh, well that's kind of cool. Have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? And they probably didn't do it quite that way, but this is what they were doing. It says that they were... Now, It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, who was crippled from birth and had never walked. I'm reading in verse 8. Please, please read with me. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So, it says that <clears throat> there was this man sitting at the gate, or it didn't say at the gate, I'm sorry. We'll find out later that he was at the gate. But this is where he was. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And to us, to you and me, that sounds redundant. Okay, you said he was crippled from birth. Uh, that would be pretty evident that he'd never walked, right? But this is a Jewish idiom. This is the way they convinced us, convinced each other, that this was a man who was desperate. He was completely unable To walk. He was completely dependent on somebody else to move him. He had not, from birth, ever stood on his own legs. Now, I have a unique perspective on this because my wife, Christy, has recently gone through an extended course of study in an attempt to change careers, and she's beginning her job search this week for a a job in occupational therapy. The healing of this man is amazing because if you've ever had any kind of leg surgery, any kind of arm surgery, you ever had your arm in a sling, you ever had a broken bone, the actual healing of the injury takes 6, 8, 12, 14, whatever weeks. And then after that, you have to start rehab. You have to gain strength again. You have to begin to move again. You have to gain flexibility in, jo- in, in uh, muscles and tendons and, it takes the rehab takes as long, if not longer, than the actual healing process, and here's a man who's never stood on his own two feet the The muscles don't exist. The tendons and ligaments are are tied up so tight that his feet are up underneath him, and they they've never moved. he's never stood on his own two feet. Paul is walking through the crowd, he says he's speaking with the locals. he says he's talking to them. The word there. The Greek word there is not preaching. It is not teaching. It's local speak. He's talking local speak to these guys. He's, he's asking them about the weather. He's asking them about what's going on in their lives. How are you? What's go- and he's utilizing that to preach the Gospel. And the way I know that is because when he looks at this man, he sees faith. He sees an understanding. He sees the beginning of the... You ever had a light bulb moment? moment? I know I have. I've read the same passage of Scripture 35 hundred times it seems like. And I pick it up and I'm reading it one <gasps> Wow! That's what it means! And this is a man who had no scriptural background. Had had nothing, no commonality with Paul as far as an understanding of the Old Testament. And yet, Paul was u- able to use common everyday occurrences and experiences that he had similar to the people around him to explain enough about Jesus Christ that when he looked at this man, he saw a light bulb moment. He saw the guy begin to understand. He knew that the man had within him somehow a faith that was able to make him well and he said, stand up and walk. And he did. He stood up and he started walking. And he jumps and he's joyous and he draws attention and there's suddenly a crowd. And this crowd sees this amazing miracle, this act of, incredible act of God or the gods as they thought, because they were a polytheistic society. And they're drawn to it immediately, and there's a, this crowd develops. and And I'm not sure exactly how it happens because the Scripture doesn't tell us, but Paul and Barnabas are seen as gods. They begin to call them Zeus and Hermes. They call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. Now, one of the cool things that I had the opportunity to learn this week while I was studying was that this title that we've been given in modern day America of this book, the Acts of the Apostles that we've discussed before is really the Acts of Jesus Christ after he went to heaven through the Holy Spirit in building his church, that this is a common title, not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of so-and-so. There were literally hundreds of volumes written at that time, the acts of this guy and the acts of that guy and the acts of the other guy and the acts of these people together and the acts of those people together. And This is a common literary style of the time. And there was another guy in Lystra who'd written a book, The Acts of Paul and some other person, and it's probably mostly a work of fiction, but it has a description of Paul in it. And Paul was a short man, balding, strong of build, and verbal. It means he talked a lot. So now we've got the tall, sort of reserved, long-bearded gentleman who doesn't say much, who's more about ministry, more about caring for people, more about reaching out and helping the people in need. And you've got the short guy that talks a lot. So they looked at these two and they said, oh, we've got Zeus and Hermes. We've got the head god the top god who doesn't say much, who doesn't communicate with humans much. And we've got his spokesman, the one who does all the talking. And, and, and this, is, this is, to us, is very foreign. But I want you to understand something about this. It was understandable in their culture because you see Lystra had a huge temple to Zeus right outside the city gate. Probably where Paul and Barnabas were standing and talking, they could turn around and see it. And that temple was built where it was built because of a local legend. And that local legend said that Zeus and Hermes had visited the city of Lystra once before. And that when they came down, nobody accepted them. Nobody believed who they were. Nobody worshipped them, and they got mad. And there was one couple that lived outside the city gate that realized that this was Zeus and Hermes. And they welcomed Zeus and Hermes into their home and cared for them and made sacrifice to them, and worshipped them. And so Zeus and Hermes destroyed the entire city of Lystra, but allowed those two to live. And they lived a long and healthy life and died together in their house. And so on that point, they built this temple to Zeus. So that culture was programmed that Zeus and Hermes would come down and talk to them. And when they did, they better recognize them and they better worship them because if they didn't, they were all going to die. So they see Paul... And they see Barnabas doing a miraculous sign in their midst, and they're like, Oh, here it is. We gotta do something. And they, and the priest of Zeus comes out of the temple and he brings the materials to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't immediately understand what's going on, and whether that's I think it's one of those intriguing things. We don't really know why. Have you ever been in a large crowd situation where there's one speaker and most people are paying attention to him, but the further you, out to the edge you get, there's conversations that develop and little things happening? And it could have been something like that. It could be these people on the fringe going, oh, wait a second, wow, we've got to do something about this. Or it could be that they were talking to each other in their own dialect and in their own tongue local to the place that wasn't the Greek that was understood by Paul and Barnabas and by everybody else in the area, it wasn't the common Roman language that was being spoken at the time. It was their own local dialect. And so Paul and Barnabas didn't immediately understand it, which I find intriguing on a much higher level that we won't go into today because Paul claims later in the Bible to have the gift of tongues. So evidently that leads us into a conversation where the gift of tongues is not always understanding foreign languages only. But that's a conversation for another day. Come back, we'll talk about it again sometime. <clears throat> talk about it in community groups. There's a good idea. So here's this, this polytheistic society worshiping many gods. Two of them apparently have come to visit them. They want to worship, offer sacrifice. What, Paul, what is Paul and Barnabas' when they discover what's really going on? What is, what is their response? And this is, this is powerful. When we see religious delusion around us, when we see the wrong gods being worshipped, when we enter into a place <clears throat> where people are more intent on the creation than they are on the Creator, we need to recognize it as delusion. And our response needs to be strong and it needs to be immediate and it needs to be effective. And what Paul and Barnabas do is they run into the midst of this crowd and they tear their clothes, which is, which is the Jewish sign for the ultimate emotional horror that they were seeing happen here. And and, and they say to them, no, don't do this. And I want to read to you what Paul says. Starting in verse 14. Please read it with me. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and that all all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They reverted, they, 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 they began again along this same model that they've used to this point. They reached out to people where they were at. They used their terminology. They used their language. They pointed to their belief structure and said, let me show you where you have it just a little bit wrong. And we need to be prepared to do that too because often what I don't know that we really understand is that we live in a polytheistic society ourselves right now. We we live in a society that has several generations down the road of secular humanism that says that you are your own God. There is no one out there who has the right to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. It is best for you to determine what is best within you and to, to be all that you can be in the way that you can be as long as it feels right to you. And that means that we are in a culture of thousands of little gods who are seeking only to worship themselves. And as such, we need to be able to identify. And in a culture, like we've already said, here in Albany, doesn't understand the Scriptures, doesn't know what they say. So we've got to be able to meet them where they're at and show them why they can't, in fact, be their own god. Why they cannot, in fact, rely on their own intuition. Why it can't be a feeling that comes from within, but it has to be a worship of the God of the Scripture. There is but one true God, and He has provided for us the way that He desires, the only way that we can come to Him in the way that He desires to be worshipped. And we have to do it that way. And you're right, there is no one person or man who has the right to tell you how to do it. But God does. So we have to be able to work into this delusion of our culture. Find commonalities. Find common points of interest. Find common understandings. Luce spoke last week about learning what people's dreams and fears and pains and idols are and speaking to those things. There's another point that I want to bring up here as we talk about this. And that is that, that in their delusion, they turned to worshiping the messenger and the gospelizer rather than Jesus Christ. And I want, to, I want to warn us as Christians in modern day America to be wary of that. We'll see around us, and we'll see again in Acts further down the road, I believe, that we tend to set up in front of us objects of worship, idols, in our Christian community. You know, I, I think of... I enjoy the teaching of specific pastors. Matt Chandler and, and Driscoll. And uh, there's others. Lou, Lou quotes... Um, help me, I'm sorry. Piper, John Piper, often. I, I respect his ability to teach. I respect his humility. we got to guard ourselves against setting them up as many gods and, and, and identifying with them and with their teaching. And we need to return to Identifying with Jesus Christ and worshiping Him alone. So just, just a little word of caution. It's happened in the past. Usually, when one of these guys sets himself up, it's without being under the authority of a church. And it leads down a road to a cult. And then you end up drinking purple Kool-Aid and covering your heads with shrouds and putting dimes in your pockets. And, and none of that's biblical. But, but when, we tent, when we focus too much on the person bringing the message and not enough, not enough on the message itself, then we find ourselves in the place of listening to false teaching and giving it too much value and we can be led astray. So we need to be careful not to do that. So this delusion, this you're a God, oh you're not a God, leads to a a violent eruption in the crowd. And I think it's interesting here. I want to turn to, to verse 19 and read it together. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So now we have Paul and Barnabas on the trip, walking the road, sharing the gospel, and coming along behind him. It's not enough for the people, the Jews from Antioch to reject him in that city. It, it appears as though they came from Antioch to Iconium, followed him there, and, and brought up resistance that was going to end up in death, and they left before that. Followed him again to Lystra. Brought with them their hoodlums. Brought with them their busloads of malcontents and said, we got to start another riot. And they did. And um, <coughs> this, is, this, is, this is something that happens today. i was, I got to tell you, I was in California. And this is going back. This, will, this, this is going back a little bit. But I was in the military in California and I was a sworn officer of the law when <coughs> Reginald Denny a uh, truck driver in, in Los Angeles was hauled out of his truck because of the Rodney King riots and killed in, in the street. And and people in Los Angeles were rioting over this conflict, this racial tension that had erupted in the middle of the night in Los Angeles. Well, I was stationed in San Francisco. And you'd think, okay, that's 1,100 miles away, 900 miles away. There's, it, they're too vit- culturally anatomically very different cities, very different people. What did San Francisco care? Well, for the most part, it didn't. It's a financial center. It went on about its business. There was no big deal. But you got downtown, and there were groups of people bringing busloads of rioters out of Los Angeles into the downtown area of San Francisco to start a riot in downtown San Francisco. And they rose up, and they started to riot. And they, the police department couldn't handle it. They couldn't, there was not sufficient police in this quiet financial center of the world to handle this gang-influenced warfare that was going on in their streets, automatic warfare that was going automatic uh, firearm warfare that was going on. So they, they, they came to the, the, the sworn officers of the law in the military and they said, we need your help. And we walked the streets of San Francisco arm in arm with a blue hat. And now here's, here's a funny picture for you, and one I'll never forget. But I had a military working dog, an attack dog that went with me. And she was an Akita, and she was vicious, and you would not get near her. And I wore full camis, and a bulletproof vest, and a helmet, and a, I had a, an M, and a, um, M16 on one side, and a sidearm on the other, and a, and a plastic shield if I wanted it. And and you, you asked for it, I could have it. And and he wore a blue hat and had a thirty eight. And and you just want to know who 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 picked on who right so but it was a good situation we restored the peace fairly quickly but this idea of having malcontents follow isn't a new it's not an old concept it's not a new concept it's a life concept it's going to happen people are going to bring along people when you find it within yourself to preach the gospel it's generally not going to be just the person sitting across from you that begins to hear it and they're going to Oh, and they're going to bring, well, my my friend says, well, let's, let's talk to my friend, and they're going to bring along others, and pretty soon, when somebody gets upset, they're going to bring along a bunch of other people that think like they do, and you're going to find yourself in a in a riot. <laughs> well, hopefully not a riot. But Paul and Barnabas found themselves in the center of this riot. And, and it happened so quickly this time that they didn't even have time to escape with their lives. And the crowd grabs Paul, and they stone him. And this is this, Paul, this is an event in Paul's life that he never forgets. When he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, he recounts it. So this is not something that you get over quickly. Uh, they, they hauled him out, they threw him down, and they threw large, sharp rocks at him until it says they supposed he was dead. Now this is an interesting little play here. and I'm just going to give you a quick little insight. Who wrote this book? Luke. What does Luke do for a living? He's a doctor. He walked with Paul for a while on one of his missionary journeys. So this is likely a firsthand account of what Paul went through. So when, when Paul's talking about, because Paul was a talker, to Luke about what happened to him and, and, and he gets stoned, Luke's going to ask him, did you die? Was this a, a death experience? Did, you, did your heart stop? He's going to want the medical description. He's going to want to understand really what happened to Paul. And Paul does not express to Luke. It's a very definite medical term that Luke uses here. Paul says, I didn't die. I just was at the point where they supposed that I was dead. So there's some contention among the... Uh, the. Um, commentators that I read about this as to whether or not this is a miracle? You know, did did Paul... If, if Paul died, and they hauled him out on the trash heap and threw him away, which is exactly what the text says they did, and, and the Holy Spirit revived him, then this is a resurrection. Then this is a miracle. And Paul says, no, I didn't die. I was just supposed... I, they just supposed that I was dead. I was playing possum. I let them think they killed me so I could wake up and walk away. But... I think either way, it's a miracle. I mean, if you get thrown down on the ground by a riotous group and they throw big rocks at you long enough to tear your skin and knock you out and bruise you and open wounds on your body, and a few minutes later, the disciples gather around you in a circle as it says, as it describes in the next verse, which we'll need to read in a minute. And I think they were praying. And He stands up. I think it's a miracle. Either way. I, to me, to me, I I've never been stoned or stoned. But <clears throat> if you stand up in the middle of that and walk back into the city that just caused you your death, that's a miracle. So let's look at what happens. So the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when it says they dragged him out of the city, they weren't taking him to the temple of Zeus across the way or anything like that. The garbage heap was outside. They had a dead body. They needed to get it out of the city. So they hauled him out by his hair and tossed him on this garbage heap thinking, thinking he was dead. When the disciple, oh. yeah, when, But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So the disciples gather around him. I think they're praying. It doesn't say, but if you and I have someone, friend, teacher, many of these probably recent converts, maybe as a result of his ministry that day, gather around the supposedly lifeless body of the person that just preached the Gospel to you, I'm pretty sure you're going to be praying. I know I would be. So I think they were praying. Miraculously, Paul stands up, wipes off the garbage, shakes himself, and goes back into the city where they just stoned him. It says he woke up the next morning and he went on to Derby. Now, I want to ask you a question. What would you do in that scenario? I know for me, I've never been in that critical a scenario, and it's taken much less to affect me. And what happens to me is, is I go, oh, well, this mission thing's not for me. I'm really not supposed to be a missionary. Maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I can't do this. We turn into what Matt Chandler calls navel-gazers. I can't do this. I'm no good. Right? But that eliminates us from being able to be used by the Holy Spirit and by God to spread the Gospel. We tend to want to walk to two extremes. We either get angry and upset and, well, they're no good and they won't ever listen to me and so... I'm out of here. Or we turn into a navel gazer. Oh, I can't do this. It's just, um. And neither is right. What's right is to do what Paul did, which is to get up, dust yourself off, and go right back into the place where the conflict happened and begin again. And that's what he did. Now he, does, he goes into the city, he spends the night, and he goes on to Derby. And I want you to understand one thing right here, right now. I'm not saying any one of us is Paul. I'm, please don't hear me that way but I want you to understand that had Paul turned into a naval gazer at that moment, oh, I can't do this. There never would have been a second missionary journey. There never would have been a third missionary journey. There never would have been any of the letters written that he wrote to the churches after his first, second, and third missionary journeys, which is two-thirds of our New Testament. The testimony of the Gospel that we see today would never have happened. But Paul didn't do that. And so he he picks himself up. He goes back into the fight. He goes on to Derby. And what happens at Derby? Immediately, the next city he goes to, another long trip, another long walk. It's another Gentile city. It's another pagan city. There's no Jewish synagogue, no Jewish culture. We don't know much about their culture because it's not expressed here. We don't know anything about his ministry there because it's not expressed here. The only thing we know is the result. And it's written in one verse. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. They preached the gospel and it was received. They made many disciples. They were there an extended period of time. We know that they made many disciples. They didn't just preach the gospel and have many converts. They made many disciples. They they built up and strengthened many followers of Jesus Christ. So, immediately, conflict, oppression, even to the point of physical supposed death, get up and go on immediate result. A blessing. An amazing response to the Gospel. The very next person, if you become a navel gazer, if you say, oh, I can't do this... You, you never get to the next person. Paul got to the next person, and the response was immediate, and it was large, and it was great, and it was gracious. We don't have the church of Derby today. Derby, is, as a city, is a wasteland. It's a, it's a, but we know that there was a big church at Derby, and we know that, that they continued in the gospel because when Paul makes a trip out into the outlying areas to, to receive offerings to take back to the Christians in Jerusalem who are being oppressed at that time i believe by nero and are under huge uh, the result of a huge famine in the land the the gift that is given by the church at derby is so large that they have to send emissary with paul to take it back to jerusalem so they have become a a large and a functional and a a church that that is then reaching out and reaching out to those in need so so this is the third response that we see to the gospel. We see devotion. So we might very well see division. We might very well see delusion. We have to be respond, ready to respond to each of those in, the way, in a way that's God-fearing and God-glorifying. But we also may see devotion, and that—that is—I mean, I don't know if you've been there when that happens. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to share your faith in Jesus Christ with someone and, and have that light bulb moment, have them go, oh, "Really?" You love me enough to tell me, to spend time with me, to, to share with me what God did for me? That's Jesus? This oh, It's an awesome thing. It's a wonderful thing. So then, just kind of quickly, it says that they went back through Iconium, Lystra and Iconium to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Let me, let's read this together. Verses 21 and following. When they had preached the gospel to Derby, oh, to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas... They've reached the furthest extent of their trip, Derby. They're going to go back to Antioch in Pisidia, back across up to Antioch in Syria, and they're going to give a report on what they've done. But as they go, they go right back to the center of the storm in each one of the cities they've been in first, and they find that their testimony was not in vain. They're preaching of the gospel although it had been received by delusion and by division in these two cities, had also been received in devotion, that there were Christians there, that they were growing, that there were churches starting, small groupings coming together. And they used those small groupings and they planted churches. <clears throat> and they established in those churches structure, biblical structure. They appointed elders. They they, they appointed authority and leadership to lead those churches. They didn't lead them leave them to just experiment and figure out how to do it they they implemented a god-given structure and that's something that's very important for us as believers here today is to be involved in a church ministry that is structured in a biblical manner and is following the principles of the scripture in the way that it is it is led so that so that we too will be won't be caught out in a fringe or in a misunderstanding we believe in a plurality of elders here we had two-in process that we added just recently. And uh, there is purpose behind that. God did, did that with a reason. No one of us can get too crazy with the purple Kool-Aid without the others going, wait a second. It's not what's in the Bible. Let's get back to the Word. Let's let's focus in on the Giver of life. And then what did they do last of all? They prayed. They prayed for these these new believers, these new churches, these new leaders that they stepped up and And we need to be doing that as well, family. We need to be praying for for those who are in our lives who don't understand and those who are new converts and those who have been Christians for a long time, we all need to be under that mantle of prayer often. So I want to ask you a question today. Are you doing that? Are you finding ways to contextualize, not change the Gospel, not rename the Gospel, not represent the Gospel, but contextualize it to what you are living in today? Are you finding commonalities, common ground with friends and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students? I want to encourage you that that we all as human beings on this planet have things in common with all other human beings on this planet. I've been to the ends of the earth. If you really want to think about it, that verse in Acts chapter 1 that I read isn't just a command. Although I think that the apostles who were standing in front of Jesus when He said you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, saw it as a directive. I think it was a prophecy. We don't believe in globes in schools anymore because we got Google Earth. But if you take a globe and you put your finger on Jerusalem and you spin it around put your finger on the other side, we're not directly across from it, but Glenmont, New York is pretty close to directly across from Israel. Not direct, not immediate but we're pretty far away. We're pretty close to the ends of the earth. And the fact that we are here today in this church at King's Chaipo worshiping the one true and risen Jesus Christ is the result of those apostles on that day beginning to fulfill that, 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 that prophecy. <clears throat> so are you doing that? Are you stepping outside? your? Com- are you using your comfort zone for the purpose of sharing the Scriptures? sharing Jesus, sharing the Gospel if people don't understand the Scriptures? Are you stepping outside of your comfort zone and looking for commonalities? If you're not, I want to hazard a guess that the reason is fear. And the reason I want to hazard that guess is because I myself (laughs) fall under this. Should I speak up? Should I say something? Should I share? I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of rejection. You know, this is huge for me. And I, I, don't, I want people to like me. I'm a nice guy, maybe. But we're, I, think, I think at some level we're all, we're all afraid of rejection, especially with people that we know. We live in the most open, permissive culture in, in the history of the United States of America. We can talk about anything. We can talk about our sexual preference on Facebook, but we can't talk about Jesus. Why? Fear. Fear. Fear that that people aren't going to accept it. They don't know it. They don't understand it. They don't want to hear it. They're going to reject the Word. And because of that, they're going to reject us. I I want to encourage you today by letting you know that you're not alone. I feel this. The other elders in your church feel this. And even more than that, there was a pastor in one of these churches in Lystra that Paul found before he was a pastor on one of these trips, who suffered from it as well. He was afraid. He was afraid to continue to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ in Lystra. You know how I know he was afraid? Because Paul wrote him a letter. He went back and visited him a couple of times, but he didn't just visit him. He wrote him letters of comfort. And we have two of them in Scripture. That pastor's name is Timothy. Let me read you what Paul, in closing today, I want to read you what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the second letter of encouragement that he wrote to him. He starts out and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he identifies himself by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ to Timothy, my beloved child. This is someone that he cares deeply about. If we skip down to verse 7, he says, for God gave us a spirit Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Fear. And testifying about the gospel is not a new problem. It's an old problem. It's always been there. Huge, big teachers, prophets, leaders in churches have all suffered from it. Timothy himself, a young man, a young pastor in the gospel, suffered from it. So let me encourage you with those words. Please take what you can from that encouragement, knowing that you're not alone, that, that Paul wrote this letter of encouragement to Timothy because Timothy himself was in that same boat. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Acts chapter 14. Thank you for this description that you've given us of of Paul and Barnabas in their, in their um, obedience to your calling by the Holy Spirit, in their response to being sent out by the prayed for and sent out by the elders in Antioch, started this, this incredible spread of the Gospel. This this first testimony to Gentiles outside of Israel that became the churches in Galatia that continued to spread and become the, the expanded, in, incredible spread of the Gospel that reaches all the way to us here in Glenmont today. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your love for us. You alone, Lord, deserve, deserve to be worshiped and we praise You for the things that You have done in our lives to this point. We ask for strength, Father. Give us, give us the power that comes from being filled by the Holy Spirit in knowing and understanding that You alone are God. Open our hearts and our minds to those around us. Cause us to look outside of our own lives and find points of commonality with our friends and our neighbors and our relatives that we can stand on and, and utilize to speak Christ to them. Share with them the greatest story that was ever told. Father, thank You for, for this opportunity to share Your Word today. In Jesus' name we pray.